This is the Context Podcast sponsored by Proofgeist. I'm your host, Jeremy Brown. Did you know FileMaker has been featured in the sports world? Specifically, an app built by today's guest appeared all around as one of the best apps doing a particular thing. This amazing feat, making predictions about how individual players in the league would do, garnered a lot of attention from inside the league and outside. And now Claris has featured the app in a great video highlighting how this app performs so well. Chris Hippolyte from iSolutions joins me today to talk about machine learning in FileMaker. He's worked extensively with this idea for many years, first as a hobby and now part of what he does to use the Claris FileMaker platform to make predictions about all sorts of things. In this episode, Chris and I talk about how machine learning works, what we can do with it, and its implications. He gives us many examples. I even stumble on some of those. And we discuss how machine learning is used all around us. Chris also shares the story behind his, this powerful prediction model he's built that has been featured in many places. Machine learning is a powerful and exciting slash scary tool. And Chris is here to highlight all that we can know about machine learning. Hey, Chris, welcome back to the Context Podcast. How are you today? Jeremy, I am really excited to be here. Thanks for letting me be a guest on the show. Wait, Chris, uh, is, that, is that you? What's going on? Hey. Okay, you got me. This is actually ChrisBot, a machine learning model of Chris's voice. Wow. Um, that, <laughs> that's pretty incredible. That sounded just like you, I hope. Well, it's it it is a machine learning model of my voice. I've been training wow. it for uh, uh, most of the past year. I'm, it's a little oh. side experiment of mine. I'm hoping I could get it to you know pass the Turing uh, test, <laughs> right? And then I I don't actually have to record videos anymore. I can just type them and feed it to the model. So <laughs> we'll see if that works. I don't know if it fooled you, but um, I'm working on it. It might it might need a year or so. So let me get let me get this right. You are a FileMaker developer, but you're focusing, you're working with machine learning right now. Absolutely, yeah. I, um, you know, my career for the past uh, twenty plus years has been uh, exclusively in FileMaker, and as integrations have been introduced into our platform, uh, it's become really. Uh, I've been I've become really fascinated with the machine learning model aspect, not only as it crosses over into our work, but just you know as consumers, uh, we are literally living in a machine learning world, and I can't not stare right at it from a work perspective. That's that's a really interesting thought that we're living in a machine learning world now. What what makes you say that? What what do you see that is is evidence? Well, uh, like everything we do, if you really look at it from a consumer or even an entertainment uh, perspective, it's probably the easiest. Like think about you know your Netflix experience or your Amazon experience. It's very much driven by you know the the likes and the dislikes and and the actions that you're taking. Everything's being recorded in these individual models. Like there's literally dozens and dozens of models that represent Jeremy and Chris floating out there. Netflix has one. Amazon has one. Apple has one. Google probably has like hundreds. Uh, but the point is, all these are there to try to serve our likes and dislikes and try to present stuff that makes sense to us out in front of us. Probably for the sake of consumer. Uh, decisions, but there's other things that are all around us uh, that that are happening. These models are everywhere, and businesses are using them. You know, at the highest levels, businesses are using these models for their products and services. 
Our topic today is working with CoreML or machine learning in general, and you've got a lot to say on this because you've been working with it for uh, for quite a while. Claris put together a video with you um, talking about a vision model. Um, do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, Claris has a series of videos that are up on the Claris YouTube channel. Uh, one of them uh, that I put together f uh, for them was uh, creating a vision model. And I've done similar stuff like this up on uh, my iSolutions YouTube and even over on LinkedIn Learning. But this was sort of the most modern version of it. And the video, which I encourage people to check out, is probably the easiest most palatable way to understand uh, machine learning because vision machine learning and, and vision recognition, I think is the easiest for all of us to really understand because we see it, right? So in this model, what, what I'm doing is training. So I have, I've got a FileMaker database that has a bunch of products in it. And what I'm doing is training a model to recognize pictures of the different products that are in the database, specifically so that I can use the camera on an iPhone to take a picture of a product that I might have in my hand, and then the model identifies what the product is uh, based on um, you know these classifiers and what percentage of confidence it thinks it has that it identified the right product. But when it does, we can extract things like the product ID or the product name from it, and then feed that into a FileMaker script to go find this thing in, in our inventory. So the, you know the purpose there would be you know, like, what problem are we trying to solve? Well, you know, I've, I've don't, don't have my hands free and I need a part. And so I can literally just take my phone out of my pocket, take a picture of the part, and it goes and finds it in our database as a small example of vision models. So you put together this video. I watched it. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. You, you just mentioned being able to pull from an image the exact part and then any other data that comes that is stored about that part in the FileMaker file and then use it in other workflows. Um, that sounds that sounds pretty powerful. But I guess actually, you know what? Let's take a step back. What is machine learning? You're you're fascinated by this. You're you spend a lot of time on this. What is this? What is this definition? Machine learning is really about taking tons of data, finding patterns in that data, and then applying patterns to data or future data to do predictions, whether it's predict the thing that we're looking at in an in a image or predict the outcomes of things or um, do projections into the future, or it doesn't even have to you know move forward into the future. It could just be simply be at this space and time, like we take a photo of something, what is this? Identify it. And all we're doing there is looking at tons and tons of data and it's saying, based on all the data that I've studied or trained, that's what you know the terminology is in machine learning, uh, I've been trained to identify certain patterns in data, and I think I've identified a certain pattern here, and I've identified it, and I'm talking as the model, but I've identified it with a certain level of confidence. So at 99% confidence, I think this thing is a spark plug, not a head gasket or something like that. Okay. And at the core, that's really what machine learning is. I mean, it comes in different flavors, but you know, it's at its core, that's really what it is. Find the pattern, apply the pattern. And it pretty much runs the world. That, that concept right now is running the world, no doubt. Let's talk about this. You, you mentioned a bit ago that it, it works in various companies to help it know my likes and dislikes. Your, your video showed, showed a video of you working with the spark plug that was a very well-defined spark plug. And based on that image, you could learn about it. You could train it and then extrapolate from the record. Is The point of machine learning is to take a similar image a similar spark plug 
not the exact one that you were just using to train, right? Yep, great point. I, I, that clarification, I think, is necessary. So what, what I'm doing is finding as many similar things. Like I did another one, by the way, <laughs> that's up on iSolutions uh, YouTube, which is a little uh, sillier, but maybe it makes this point a little bit easier. I created a, a similar app uh, uh, called Hot Dog, Not Hot Dog. This is, of course, derivative from you know, uh, Silicon Valley. And so in order to train the model to d- identify a hot dog, I had to go online. I went online and found like a image repository, which is, you know, they're available online for, you can find, you know, hundreds and hundreds of photos of hot dogs and they were different hot dogs. Right. So I'm really just trying to say to the model, Hey, when you see a thing that looks like this, it's a hot dog. Mm-hmm. And so I got to find as many different things as I can. Even in the case of the spark plug, you know, I was doing the burst effect on the iPhone and like doing 360 kind of, you know, moving the camera all around to get every possible angle so that in real life, when someone's taking a photo, it doesn't matter what angle they're taking a photo, whether it's the bottom or the top or the side, they'll recognize, you know, the, the, the model will have enough training to recognize that. So really training is a, a critically important part of the effectiveness of models. There's no doubt. When you did your training in the video, you had two, three separate uh, folders that had three, had images of three separate um, items, right? Yeah. How, how does this work actually in FileMaker? I get the idea of like you're you're creating a file that has the information that it's it's trained. Yep. How is it working in FileMaker to take an, any image that you throw in front of it? Is it loaded? Is it like on a script trigger or a, you know a, a, a script a, a layout trigger? That's what I mean to say. Yeah, no, it's actually a, there's a script step, and so you, you very much have to flip the switch, right? Okay. So the the FileMaker components are. Assuming you've created this model, and and just to be clear, you know, I want to frame this up a little bit. We're talking about Core ML, which is gr- amazing for a, a vision model execution, which is what we're specifically talking about with the spark plugs and the hot dogs and such. But Core ML has some level of limitation. You know, it, it's a it's a it's an Apple technology, right? So um, you need to, you know, the what I was recording on was a. a you know, a Mac, uh, an M1 Mac when I recorded that video. And then I was running the actual model to demonstrate it working on iOS. Those are both, you know, Apple technologies that support Core ML. So if you, ha- if you have an environment that, you know, uh, is convenient enough to have nothing but Mac deployments or just iOS for that matter, you can leverage Core ML, right? So that means that there's an engine behind FileMaker even that's on the OS level that's actually running it. So the way that FileMaker communicates with that engine is we flip a switch with a uh, script step that's called con- configure, you know, machine learning model. And you can do that as a trigger. I did that in the, the video as a trigger on open of the file, but you can do that whenever you're about to encounter the machine learning model within the workflow of your script. Okay, that, that makes sense. So it's it's pulling from the OS's... Um some of the, some application that's on the OS level. Yeah, it's the same um, thing as like uh, uh, po- uh, polling for iBeacons. I it's the same kind of logic there, you know, location sensing. It's really not FileMaker doing that. It's just FileMaker working in, in cooperative with the uh, operating systems uh, uh, supported features. When was this introduced for FileMaker? In 19? Uh, yes, actually, this was 19. I know my pause there was just like, what are we, what version are we in, in now? Right. Yeah. So it was technically uh, the core ML support itself was in 19, but I, I think it's worth mentioning that, uh, machine learning, uh, support within FileMaker has been around as long as we could integrate with APIs. As a matter of fact, wow. um, I think most of the machine learning, uh, that I'm doing and that we're doing in like real life applications happens 
through API integrations. So you can like, you know, connect to a, and there's tons of them out there, okay. uh, but you, you can connect to services that have models or that are hosting your model because uh, a lot of these require a lot of processing, right? Like depending on how intelligent your model is, it might be too much for an iPhone's, you know, processing. So you might have to throw it up to a big server somewhere to crunch data for you. So they're okay. Okay. So since we've had insert from URL, mm-hmm. I assume that's the thing we can, we could have, uh, even back in, I think, 16, when that came out, we could have um, sent a base 64 encoded image for vision models up to some service and gotten back what it is. Is that yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. So in the case of a vision model, that's exactly what we would do. I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, we would turn that into a data that we can send. So the base 64 is a great way to do that send that over to a model. The model then processes it, determines what it thinks it is based on the confidence level, and then sends the results back uh, to FileMaker. And then we just integrate that like we do any other API in response. Okay. Um, so yeah, that. But, but honestly, while the vision model is the perfect thing for training because we can see it and, and really grasp our heads, it's really general models or, or data models that help us do anything from predictive analysis to just like, you know, really subtle things in the background of applications. And, and that's where I, I would really encourage people listening who have natural curiosities about how machine learning could affect what they're doing in a FileMaker, you know, business to business use case. I would suggest looking at other things. As a matter of fact, I was turned on to the Monkey Learn platform by Heidi Porter, who, you know, a friend of uh, the FileMaker community. And she had done a presentation on Monkey Learn. And I was like, oh my. And I had been like actually muscling through creating my own models, <laughs> like the hard way. Mm. Uh, and and it is hard to create models and it's hard to find an environment to do these. And so Monkey Learn, if, if people check that out, um, I've also got a bunch of videos on, on Monkey Learn stuff up on iSolutions YouTube. But it is a system that has uh, a lot of text-based models up there that you can just feed data to. You know, some of the more common ones are like uh, sentiment analysis. Like you probably see this kind of thing where like you'll send comments or Twitter replies or something to it and it'll come back and say whether it was positive or negative. Okay. Um, you know, a use case for something like that was uh, I had done a distance learning with FileMaker and the Claris platform video last year for Engage. And one of the things was, you know, I wanted to determine the emo- the emo- emotion of the student as they, they logged into the application for their lesson that day. Uh, social emotional learning is like this concept within teaching. I, I'm mostly just been educated to it on it from my wife, who's a special ed teacher. The idea of being able to just have a child say, you know, how are you doing today? And then they write a sentence about how they're doing today, whether, oh, I was bullied on the bus or, you know, I had a great day or whatever. A sentiment analysis model can take that chunk of data and then based on a, on the model that's already been pre-created for you, will tell you whether or not that they're positive, negative, mm-hmm. neutral. So that's one that Monkey Learn has. Classifiers as well, too. You can, you know, categorize data. Uh, another thing that I did in the, uh, the, the, the Claris uh, in Education uh, demo that I did last summer was take a big summary of a lesson. Like here's the entire lesson on the Gettysburg Address was the thing I was doing. And it'll automatically extract the, it'll do a summary, first of all, like just say, you know, give me the cliff notes. And I know what you're thinking, where was this when we were in school, right? Like <laughs> we could just feed our, our book books to a model and it'll, it'll write a book report for us. But that's exactly what those summary models are doing or extraction models are doing. And then another one just like pulls keywords out of it. So it finds like, you know, 
uh, keywords, nouns, or you know, frequently used words, and creates a, a list of those things. And the example of the the educator, uh, I was able to say, take well, here's a lesson I just did in Zoom, and then. It, it, uh, pull the the Zoom transcript down through an API or a Claris Connect connection, which is something we'll see in the future. Do a summary of the entire narrative of the lesson and put that into an email that gets sent out to a student to say, here's what the basic course was that we did today. And here are the keywords and some of the topics that you know you should learn about. All that done done by machine learning models, right? Like a teacher wouldn't even have to do that. And I know this is hitting close to home because of your your personal experience uh, as a teacher and all the prep work that goes into that. So uh, you, you reminded me of something. I um, recently found this um, live polling service called Slido that I'm starting to use in my, in presentations and stuff, make it interactive. Right. So like, as I'm presenting Google on a Google slide, I have, I, I do some content and then I flip over to a live polling. People can log in on their phones and answer the question. They can also at any time during the presentation, write, write questions in there. And then I can see them on my other screen and then respond to them in real time. It's way better than like a zoom um, question chat thing. But one of the analysis it does at the end is any comments that come in, it can do the sentiment analysis. It can say, yep, these were positive ones or these were negative ones. Here's the percentage of each. Excellent example of a sentiment model. And they're very popular. Uh, you can imagine they yeah. come in real handy for a lot of use cases. Yeah. So, okay. So we're talking about everything but FileMaker. So let's bring <laughs> it back to FileMaker. Why would a FileMaker user, after a year of having this core ML and, and even longer being able to access um, machine learning um, APIs, what's a, what, are you, what use cases are you seeing that make sense with FileMaker data in a, you know, a company XYZ is using FileMaker to track invoices or whatever, whatever. It does, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the general use of it for people that are using FileMaker to solve problems. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's that's exactly the the puzzle piece that that you know, I'm I I look for when I'm doing all this stuff. It's fun to be in the lab and do cool stuff okay. and be like, "Hey, check this out." But the real reason we do this is to apply this to you know, to be on the on the on the bleeding edge of what the what we can offer to our customers, right? I was just reading last weekend, uh, found a survey it was uh, 700 people across different levels of industries. And it found that 95% of all those 700 respondents believe that their organizations would benefit from embedding AI into their daily operations or products or services. And to me, I was like, this is the thirst. Like people might not understand what machine learning is, even though I'm saying with conviction that they're living, in, they're surrounded by machine learning models all day, every day. People not, might not understand what it is, but there's a thirst and a curiosity about what is this thing and how can it impact me? And we have the tools within the FileMaker platform to be able to do this. Now, what, how, do, how can we look for use cases? Well, you know, the challenge with any time, it's the same kind of question if we say, hey, what can FileMaker do for my business? And, you know, us FileMaker professionals sort of sit back in our chair and go, well, where do we start, right? Like, because it's a custom right. platform. This is not something that's pre-made. It's just like, you know, the, the blank canvas of possibilities that, of, of things that we can record. The, the, the beauty of why machine learning is so important to FileMaker is because what we're in the business of is data collection and storage. I mean, I don't, I don't want to take all the, the fun out of it, but we build applications that collect data, store data, and then allow people to retrieve that data. 
So for me, I think the sort of the epiphany that I had in, in FileMaker was back in my early, early years. And this is many moons ago. I'm not even I'm too old to admit how many years. But but the point was, I remember like creating my first couple of databases. And I don't know, maybe you had the ex same experience, Jeremy, but I would create these databases and I would just be putting data into it. All I was doing was not putting it on a piece of paper and making it easy for me to retrieve this data. So it was like data in, and then when I needed data, it would help me find it. And to me, that, you know, back in that those days, that was digitization of documents. That was earth shattering, you know, technology. But the thing that really got me was, wait a minute, I've got all this data in this application. You know, we called them databases back then, right? And it's just sitting there. Wait, now I can actually make information out of the information by doing things like calculations or summaries or whatever it was. Like that moment mm -hmm. to me was my sort of inception of holy cow, man, this is this is a big deal. We're not just putting folders in a in a file uh, filing cabinet. When those folders are in that filing cabinet, they're talking to each other, so to speak, and they're they're coming to conclusions and they're summarizing and they're aggregating and they're telling me intelligence about data as it's collected in, in, in as a whole that it doesn't have as individuals. You know, you hear this whole we're better as a team than as individuals. Well, so is data. Mm. So if you fast forward however many years since like that realization happened to now, data being stored has because of the processing power that's evolved. And the models or the, the ability to create and, and generate models, there is so much intelligence that we can draw from data while it's being stored that we have to start thinking about where do we have pools of data? Like there's a concept yeah. of literally data lakes. Like look at your data within the organization and say, where do we have a ton of data? And I'll give you an example of some stuff that we've done internally, you know, just to, because I know, you know, a lot of folks that listen are in the same seats as we are. They're developers and, and running their businesses. And they probably also run their businesses on FileMaker. And one of the things that we, um, you know, have explored here was uh, project uh, estimations, for example. Uh, you know, how do we estimate? Why do we have to think about this from scratch every time? Like we've done these elements, you know, we've done thousands and thousands of projects with, with tens of thousands of line items over the years that have an estimated number of hours and then the actual number of hours. And that data is living in our system. So why are we? Re why would we reinvent the wheel every time we have to do a quote? We can go into that and have it recognize patterns and recognize similar words that will pull up line items and then say, well, you know, over the past eight projects where you wanted to do a forgot password, you know, thing on a web page or something, you as you were your variance of estimate versus actual was was very off and for some reason you keep going the direction of the original estimates instead of the actuals we suggest we being a model that you maybe go with this hour instead and you'll probably be more accurate when you're setting expectations with your customers like that kind of thing it's a little radical because it's almost like the digital transformation thing like it, digital transformation isn't like a certain set of of tech that we want people to use it's a mindset that an organization has to have about change and about you know being willing to to you know hey everything's working you know I, i'm trying to fix a problem that's broken but how can i keep going further this is the same thing with machine learning where do i have a ton of data and what conclusions might be really interesting and, and impactful for me and my customers for me to draw from that so uh, scope estimate project scope estimation is one project risk ratings are another's like you can look through you know in our system we have tons of data about, you know, updates on on projects and something a customer said and some outcome that happened or whatever. 
think about sentiment analysis against that and ratings you can give to a project at a certain stage that help you, the system tell you when, hey, may, maybe this is where you should put your resources and your attention from a management standpoint before it becomes a problem. Like these are real things that every company needs. Um, so in short, I would say, look for where you have pools of data collecting and think about what that data can do as it talks to itself and what conclusions it might be able to draw. It seems like because of what you're saying, pools of data and getting to know, getting to know the, the data that comes in, it feels like there needs to be more data that is accessed, n- more data that either lives in FileMaker or is accessed via APIs and brought in and then analyzed. You can't, it, it, it seems like if we're going to use some machine learning, I don't know if machine learning can really do well with just a database of invoices and invoice line items. It needs to know, it probably needs to know who are the people that are ordering these, what are the products, obviously. Um, it just needs more data than what we're used to putting into FileMaker? Well, first of all, you just stepped into a very controversial (laughs) position. I have a position on it, but it's only from my own personal experience. But, you know, in the machine learning world, there's schools of thought. There's schools of thought around you don't need a ton of data. You don't need a huge data set to draw conclusions. And then there's a school of thought, which I subscribe to only because of my personal experience, Jeremy. Honestly, I've I haven't solved any problems with small data sets, but the second I do, I'll, I'll be, I'll move over to that side. But right now I find that the more data I throw at something, the, the more precise the conclusions are. And, and I, I think that's like sort of logical. Like it's the same. It was fun for me to listen to you kind of untie that knot as you were asking that question, because you're drawing the same conclusion. Like, well, don't I need more data to do this? And, mm-hmm. and the true answer is no, you know, there's schools of thought out there that you don't need much data at all to train a model. But I would say, though, as with anything, as with reporting or anything else that we're used to doing in FileMaker, the more data you're throwing at it, the better. Bring it on, right? Like, you know, to, you know, to bring in AP data from APIs or, or multiple different data sources, you know, bring it into that. It's almost like, you know, how you have a join table and it's just sort of got, F, you know, foreign keys, foreign keys on it, maybe a couple of native fields, but it still has relationships to every single table in the system pull all that data down, you know, create your data lake of the most data that you can, because, you know, frankly, you might come to the conclusions or solve the problem you're intending to solve, or you might run into new interesting things that you had not intended when you were originally training the model. Could could a machine learning model tell me what times of year or help me predict, help me plan the times of the year that people buy more of our products? Excellent use case for that. And organizations all over the world are doing that already. You know, they're using it for seasonality. They're using it. And frankly, there's probably not an organization that creates products that's in the Fortune 1000 that isn't using machine learning to some degree to manage inventory and production, like to the point where they, you know, are guessing, hey, this time of year, we're going to need more of this product, even though we haven't sold much of it already. So let's ramp up production to make sure it's on the shelves when we assume that the orders are coming in based on, again, the data from the past predicting what might happen in you know those same patterns in the future. So I think you just nailed a perfect example of uh, machine learning. Okay. But, th- but I guess I want to take it the next step and say, well, all right, let's, let's use Proofgeist as an example. We sell FM Perception and we're always interested to know, you know, we want more people to have it. We want more people to, to use it and see its awesome power, right? Its benefits. Could I use past sales 
And not only just the sales and the time of year, but the people who bought that and understanding who they are a little bit, whether they're a single developer, they're part of a bigger you company. You just nailed it right there. Oh my God, I'm so happy you said that. You nailed it right there. The key well, is what you probably do more so than just buying patterns, because that probably speaks to that smaller data set that you made reference to earlier. But really what it is, is let's find out who these individuals are. Like, where's our engagement? Are, are, do we know that these people are following us on Twitter? Or, you know, are they, have they showed up for our webinars? Are they taking your JavaScript training courses? Like, who are they and what different profile do you create that then makes them go buy a product? Yeah. Because then what you'll end up finding out is, oh, wow, well, you know, 85% of the people that buy a product from us have followed us or engaged with us on something before. So, you know, the, the question then gets into your head, well, how do I track all that? Stuff, right. 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 And so that's really the mindset, like long before you're actually implementing models to make a difference within your, your business or your customer's business, you have to think about the data you want to collect. Like, for example, this project uh, management risk rating that I was telling you about. We conceived of the idea and conceived of the, how to write the model, but it was a very apparent to it right away that we needed to uh, uh, capture data in a more granular fashion in order for this model to be meaningful. So, a, you know, a year before we could even implement the model idea, we were changing the the granularity of the data we were tracking in order to be able to feed the model in the future for the types of predictions that we want to come out of it. So, um, is feeding the model a one time thing or is it ongoing? Did that's you... a big, yeah, that's a big part of this actually. So, you know, I think people should be aware that, like, if you look at the vision model, if that's making sense to folks, you know because you've seen it and, and it makes sense. Keep it, I keep in mind that like that, that movie that I showed uh, the one that we opened up at the top of the podcast with, if I add another product to that inventory or take one out or not take one out so much, but let's say I add a couple more, you know, tools to my, my parts inventory, I have to retrain the model to do that. Right. And so that's real labor. And that might become very difficult if an organization is, you know, on the fly, you know, adding new things to their parts inventory, or maybe it's not a big deal at all. You add one a year or something. So you go train a new model. Part of the sophistication and, you know, I'm not in the business of uh, criticizing you know, technologies on the Claris platform, but, you know, the engineers over there will be the first to admit that, yeah, there's other evolutions of machine learning support within FileMaker that will involve, uh, for example, you know, retraining. Like we don't, we, we can't, you know, there's no, it's the core ML isn't built into FileMaker, so I can't just feed it more data and have it constantly retrain it. But okay. guess what? There are services out there that do that. I mean, I was just talking with a customer the other day where we were saying, yeah, let's do this vision model where you recognize certain of your products. And then those products, you know, you, you can send this app out to your customers and they can identify these things in the field and learn videos about how to use it and so on and so on. And we we're like, oh, perfect for core ML except that they're going to keep retraining this. So we mm -hmm. ruled out CoreML and we found some other service that does, that you just feed it data and it retrains the model and then you just keep sending data to that model. It's a cloud-based system um, that both retrains and uh, stores the model and provides an API for it as well too. So the retraining is a big deal, as you can imagine. So, okay. So I recently have, uh, ex have revived my exploration of dashboards and the traditional model of a dashboard is working with, with just charts and lists of data. But it seems like there could be some nice intersection in a dashboard that doesn't just plot things on a graph but is or a chart, but is actually like showing alerts or telling you something is, is about to, to happen or something. I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm grasping here, but it seems like... Um, 
as I understand dashboards are supposed to kind of tell you what to do next or what's going to be happening or, or it, it helps you make a plan. It's, and it seems like this machine learning idea is actually better than just looking at, at some historical data. I, I, I think dashboards are a great uh, way to have a conversation about machine learning because what dashboards are, they, first of all, they're solving a conundrum. You know, I mentioned before where, you know, I had this, like these, this, this thought like, oh, wow, I have a ton of data. I'm just storing data in a database. Well, now that data can do stuff and get, you know, get to know itself and, and draw conclusions for me. Well, dashboards are sort of like the evolution of that because yeah. we have all this data in the system, but I want to see it in a way that makes sense to me. I want to visualize it, right? So we, mm-hmm. we've come up with dashboards because now, you know, I know the work you're doing is leveraging JavaScript, which it should, because the best visual, visualization tools that we have in the FileMaker platform are actually not in the platform natively, you know, like D3 visualizations or something like that, or whatever your, you know, library of choice is. But, but the point is that's data that's in the system. So you're seeing a visual snapshot of where we are right now. And admittedly, most, you know, individuals, whatever role they play in an organization, and they're looking at, you know, a dashboard, they probably are trying to make some sort of predictive, you know, they're doing some predictive analysis, right? Mm-hmm. But the but the data that they're seeing is kind of up until a certain point. It's like here, up until today, or whatever, you know, range they've selected, this is what sales look like, or this is what our growth patterns look like, or year over year, blah, blah, blah. Everything's looking behind you. So to me, the thing that like really fascinates me about machine learning is like to predict the future. Like, honest to God, like the future is not that creative. (laughs) It's basically just rinsing and repeating the same patterns we've all done before. So those patterns exist in our data. Why not embellish visualizing data on on a uh, dashboard by having some of that visualization talk about potential future trends, for example? Yeah, it feels like, though, there's got to be like a different model for a dashboard. I don't know what it is, but if, if you can use machine learning to predict, you know, or to deal with risk analysis, um, and give you advice on what to do, maybe a dashboard is exactly that is something to give you advice. You enter a new project in, you enter the tasks, you click submit, and it brings up a dashboard of all of the results of the machine learning of, of all of the here, here is the machine's recommendations. Yeah, yeah, I think you just nailed it. I mean, it, it's the data that it's visualizing is, you know, projects with this many tasks with this much timeline generally run into problems in the third quarter. Yeah. These are the tasks that you've had a lot of overage on before or change control actually happens with these types of topics and all that stuff. It could be visualizing. It could be showing you that in a compelling visual manner to, to, to allow people to draw conclusions or, you know, make decisions today that are going to end up being more efficient in the future as these things either come true or sort of come true, right? So the, okay, so let's get back to the the typical, like the, the vision model is very clear. You can, you can walk around and you can take a picture of something and get the information of it. Or, I mean, somebody could send you an item, say, I'm looking for this part. Do you have it? There's no information on the image. You just, you plug it into your system. Somehow it, 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 it figures out what it is and then it you can send an email back to the client saying yep we have it there's 10 left you know order soon whatever um what are what what else could what else and you've mentioned some stuff that you have been doing can you just be as general as possible and give me a good use case for the person using filemaker to store 
you know, book orders and, you know, using FileMaker to run their point of sale uh, to sell books. Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about before that might be interesting is uh, pr- you know, predicting, you know, uh, seasonality of order trends, like, you know, yeah. touching on that topic again, it, you know, inventory, when I need to replenish inventory, when I, I even need to go into production on products, uh, you know, uh, uh, what services that we're offering right now, should we even still be offering, you know, everything from, you know, we think about ROI as this way to kind of predict the future, but imagine, you know, bringing machine learning into ROI uh, analysis and establishing, you know, uh, how investments are going to be returned for different businesses. Those kind of things are huge. Um, I mean, there's, there, there's tons of things. If you really look at it from what tools are available to you, you know, we talked about sentiment classification, summary, keyword extraction, all those types of things. If you think about the individual tools and how they might apply to the certain data that any certain organization has, hopefully these things kind of pop up. So really, I guess the the thing is, it just requires a little bit of familiarity with what's possible. Okay. Um, and and I would actually, t- you know, for people that are just like, this sounds amazing. Um, I want to learn more. I would actually start at something like that Monkey Learn, you know, website I was talking to you about. You can, can go see some of the most common uh, text-based uh, you know, like the sentiment ones and the classifier ones that we've mentioned a couple times here today, those are up there. It really gets your mind thinking about what's possible. Again, people get vision, but then you can, somebody presents a problem that has images involved, you know, vision exists, you can probably suggest how a model might, you know. Okay. So I'm still hung up on this idea that machine, machine learning can do more than just identify the, the contours of, a, of, of an image, something in an image and detect what it is. That's what vision model is doing. It's like going, here's the rough shape of it. You know, it's got this little thing at the end. It's a spark plug or whatever, whatever. But how does, can you describe for us, how does machine learning take the intersection of who I am as a buyer, the time that I bought a product in the year and that product itself and learn something from it? Well, yeah, it, you take that little node of data and you multiply it by tens of thousands or potentially millions of similar activities and amazing patterns uh, reveal okay. themselves. And okay. that's really, so I guess that you can get, you see where my school of thought is. I, I like the big data crunching, you know, sort of large organizations, the more you can get, the better. That's why, that's literally why, like when you're watching Netflix, you know, the little card that you have, like, you know, it shows your favorite actor, not the card. They didn't create one card for the movie. It's the one that you're most likely to click on because of your viewing activity, for example. Okay. Um, and by the way, ignore the, like the Amazon models where it's like, you know, you bought this one, you know, screwdriver set okay. for a very particular thing and you'll never need it again in your life. And it keeps recommending it every, fi- like, that's a very, like a dirt, like a bad example of these types of things. But, you know, the nuance that you're talking about, the the seasonality, the time that I did it or, or, or when and why and how to, you know, and then compare that to a bunch of other people's decisions. Um, it gets pretty crazy. As a matter of fact, I think Probably a good way to learn this is look at the extreme other side of machine learning. I'm going to blow your mind here, uh, if, if that's okay. You're, this is going to get crazy. This is a concept that I call woe code. Um, you know, there's low code and no code, and I want to introduce woe code to people. Um, this is probably going to be, this might cause some existential crises for folks, because it certainly has for me. And I know I'm, I'm billing this uh, big, but I promise I can deliver on this. Uh, I have been particularly fascinated, concerned, and somewhat wow and wowed, you know, to no degree, um, by this model that's out there right now that revealed itself. I, I should say it came into the public domain uh, last April in uh, COVID April, and it's called the GPT three model from a, an organization called OpenAI. I 
was so unnerved by this that I kept this information to myself, even for my coworkers for, for many months until I just was so deep in the pool on it that I had to start revealing what I was finding. So first of all, GPT-3, which uh, the uh, it's an acronym, of course, for uh, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer Version 3, uh, was created by this organization called OpenAI. They're a San Francisco-based AI research lab that used to be totally private. And and they created a model. Now, it's the largest machine learning model in the world. Actually, I think it was just usurped by one in China. The new space race, by the way, are machine learning models. We don't care about you know defense and all that stuff anymore. It's all about data. So China just lapped the United States. But the one that is the most um, uh, publicly available that actually has an API to it is this uh, OpenAI's GPT-3. This model has um, 175 billion parameters. And to give you an idea, like those images that I was telling you about, like I was feeding it 50 images with like maybe four or five like sides of it. And so like imagine 175 billion parameters, the processing power that it would take the computers that we're recording this, this podcast on to run, it would take like 350 plus years to just process these models, to literally train the model with this data. The data set that GPT-3 uses, this is where it's going to blow your mind, is everything that's ever been on the internet ever including all Wikipedia, all books that have ever been uploaded, everything, code that runs the web pages themselves. It literally has taken all that data and used that as its data to train. Now, there's there's methodology methodologies when you get into deep learning like this that are not structured, where it just lets models go crazy on data and draw and learn its own stuff and draw its own conclusions. That's where the that's where we start to get a little worried, like the machine has become self-aware type stuff. But that's what's happening. And to kind of tee this up, when GPT-3 GPT came out in April of COVID year, they actually stopped for a minute and said, whoa, hold up. We're going to take this back for a second because we're a little freaked out. Like the impact of what this is, is too much. So we're going to, we want to make sure we build an API structure around this so that we know who's using it and we can just sort of see what people are doing with it. So I dove into that community. I actually got my API key later in the the summer or early fall of COVID year 2020. And I start, I built a FileMaker sandbox with the GPT-3 machine learning model on the back end of it. And what, and literally like I would spend time at my computer building things and then I would have to step away for a moment and go, whoa, what in the world is happening here? Right? So what this allows you to do, the, the way to, to, for those of you that are Googling furiously, um, I, I urge you to, to check this out after the pod. But in the meantime, what I can tell you is this is like an exploded 175 billion parameter version of the type ahead feature that we see in Google, for example. You know, when you type ahead, like, you know, uh, you know what, uh, what time is it in Australia when it's 2 a.m. in the United States or whatever, like it's completing your thought based on searches that you've done before. It's, you know, Google has a million models of each person. So one of the models is what kind of stuff you look for on the internet. And if you're not, if you're letting them track you, they can learn a lot about what you're probably thinking about. And so this is actually a a, a, a neuro-linguistic model or a text-based model that does the same type of type ahead um, sort of predictive analysis. So, um, so I know what you're wondering, like, what does this mean? What can we do this for? Well, this is, this is the part where it's going to freak you out. I've got a FileMaker sandbox that's hooked up to the GPT-3 model that I can, in an open text field, I can train the model and use the model in the same 
uh, like a handful of words. So for example, I could type in, I've built an uh, iSolutions AI assistant, for example, where I can tell it about, here's iSolutions, this is what we do, this is how many offices we have, how many employees, the specialty we have. And by just simply feeding it those pieces of information, I can then now ask the model, all right, hey, I, you know, this is the kind of thing that you put on your website or built into your app or something. Hey, how many offices do you have? Or, or you know, do you have any? Do you have anything near me? You know, in California, and like it then has the intelligence to finish the rest of those sentences. Uh, it, it also has the ability to do question and answers. Or, for example, one that I did where I said I created a model that takes complex concepts and summarizes them in a manner that a ten-year-old could understand. Uh, or the thing that people were doing with the GPT-3 model when it first came out was they were having it write articles for them. So literally people would be like reading a two-page article about what GPT-3 is. You can find these all over the internet now because it was sort of a kitschy, fun thing. And then the last paragraph is, oh, by the way, this was written by GPT-3. Like you literally can just go, hey, write a comedic, a short comedy story about two fleas that live in an apple written in the style of Oscar Wilde. Right. That was actually that sentence I just shared with you was actually uh, a contest. Oh, there are actually contests out there where, where humans were supposed to pick the model, an article that was written by the model versus a person. And they were correct only 48 percent of the time. This is like <laughs> somewhat terrifying stuff. But th the reality of it is we can use these things to do. You know, I've built text class classification models, keyword extractors, English to other language translation, the summary paragraphs for a 10-year-old to understand, slang to English converters. I even did a um, uh, realtor speak uh, model that takes like what realtors say about a house, like a handyman special um, basically means it's falling apart or motivated seller means the seller has no offer, like creating those kind of things for fun. But you may be wondering, how does something like GPT-3, how is this going to affect how what we do for a living? And this is the part where I apologize to everyone for the potentially emotional reaction they might have to this information, but GPT-3 writes code. So in the same manner that you can type some text in a sentence and it spits back some stuff, there are models that are based on GPT-3 where you can say the following words. Show me a scatter plot of daily precipitation over time, and it will return an SVG chart. Or say, build a model to clarify images into five groups. The data set has 25,000 images with an input shape of 500 by 500, and it will actually output that for you. There's one that I've been following that's, um, if you're interested, you can look into some of these things that have spun up based on GPT-3. GPT the one I think you're going to like, Jeremy, is this one called dbuild. I think it's dbuild.co. It allows users to dictate what they want as a website, and it generates React code and JavaScript. So you can simply describe it like semantically by saying, I want an input that, that uh, says, enter a to-do and a button that says, save the to-do, and then show me all my to-dos. And it will literally write that for you. So I think it's important. This is why I was so nervous. <laughs> like I was unnerved by this information. So what, what does this mean? Well, something just happened a few weeks ago that I think people should pay attention to. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm sad to report that while GPT-3 was this like, literally from a company, an organization that's called OpenAI, it was out for the whole world to consume and do things with. But unfortunately, last September, um, an announcement came that uh, an organization had licensed the exclusive perpetual rights to use GPT-3 for commercial purposes. And I think this was a this might be one of the most significant things that happened in technology, honestly. Unfortunately, that organization was Microsoft. With deference to 
Microsoft and all the good that they've probably done. We're all Apple folks, but um, I, I'm compelled to buy some Microsoft stock because this is like a whole new world. And you wonder, well, what are they going to do with it? Well, here's where I'm going with all this. Check out, well, you know, Microsoft, you know, the, the whole GitHub, you know, Microsoft acquisition thing that's going on out in the world. Well, check out a product that's called GitHub Copilot. Have you heard of this? I have. I it, actually it, downloaded it. Yeah. So that is a Visual Studio Code extension, and it's powered by Codex. Codex is a new AI system that was created by, you guessed it, OpenAI, based on, you guessed it, the GPT-3 uh, machine learning model. So for those that haven't checked it out, you literally, I mean, have you played with it? What was your experience? I'll, I'll let you talk about it. A little bit. I, Todd's played with it a lot more. It It's pretty amazing in what it can do. I'm still, I kind of like to type my own things, so I don't, I kind of uninstalled it, but it was supposed to like create an entire function in JavaScript based on what I was, what the variables that I was writing or the comments. I think that it was, was able to take the comments that I had written and turn that into a function. Is that, is that correct? That's exactly it. Yeah. You're, you're describing the logic you want and you let the copilot assemble the code for you and you, and you talk to it, uh, you know, it's a doc string, uh, comment function name or the code itself, you know, is, is what can be produced, but most people are training it. Like I was saying before, I would talk to this model by writing some text, like that's what you're doing in your comments. And the idea is that it will send out, you know, repetitive code patterns that it's seen elsewhere or even either in your code or out in the universe of code. So. I, to me, that's a, a huge, you know, glimpse into the future of what, you know, the coding experience might be like. Uh, and frankly, probably good in some degree, like, you know, nobody does more educating of, of uh, JavaScript uh, FileMaker integration than you, Jeremy. And you've, you and I have talked about this a lot of times. Your, your lament, I think, is like, I just wish more people would, you know, gravitate towards JavaScript as a tool, you know, for them to integrate. But the learning curve is certainly the issue. Right. So like, what if we're a year or two away or maybe less even uh, from people just saying, I want to have a library that does blah, 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 blah. And then it presents itself uh, in line within their FileMaker experience. To me, that's as no code as it gets. That's why I'm trying to come up with woe code because it's a little mind blowing. So one of the things I've been working on and, and as an aside, Chris, if we get done in time, I'd like to show you this um, repo that I've been working on. Chris, one of the things I've been working on is sort of a JavaScript development environment, a place where people can download the template and just uh, install it and start working with, with JavaScript. Maybe the next step in what you're saying is to lower the barrier even more. I think my environment does a pretty good job of getting people to code in VS Code and see the results in FileMaker right away. And then when you're done, you deploy it. The code is inlined and, and pushed into your FileMaker file. But maybe, maybe what you're saying is we could take this a step further and I could say, hey, sentient overlord, <laughs> GPT-3, whatever. Um, right. I want to create a, a widget for my FileMaker app that will load data from FileMaker into the C3 charting library and display it in this web viewer named web. And bingo, yeah. it could write it could write the JavaScript because there are certain patterns we have to follow, right? We have to 
we have to do the window dot and then write a function name that then is called by FileMakers, perform uh, JavaScript in FileMaker, or <laughs> perform JavaScript in a web viewer. And then we sometimes if we do callbacks, we have to write the filemaker.perform script and get the script name. So are you saying eventually we could just describe this and it will connect my my JavaScript and my FileMaker app? That's where I'm coming from with this. I'm not I'm not thinking, oh, you know, we don't, won't need developers anymore. Like, you know, I, I very much believe in the human element and the value that that brings uh, to the entire process. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm rooted in that position. But as an educator, as a fellow educator, you know, this is why you and I have these conversations all the time. Like learning curve is a real thing and and it presents fear to individuals or, or whatever, the you know, the obstacle of the unknown, whatever it is. If we can remove that with technology, I don't care how it works, but if we remove that, imagine the impact that it can have because we know the upside is real, right? But the, the entrance is the problem. So I think from a pure education standpoint, point, removing the need to have to learn these things uh, is, is, I think, a huge upside. And then just look at how much, you know, when we're talking about code code, not like FileMaker programming per se, but like JavaScript programming, how, what percent of repetitive, you know, coding do you think you're doing? I mean, honestly, like, like it's one would argue that entire the existence of libraries in JavaScript is the, the fact that there's so much repetitive coding out there that, you know, we're just going to take this whole thing and, and repurpose it or tweak it just a little bit instead of start from scratch. I could almost do it. Cause like part of what you have to do now, what I'm going to try to teach people is working with NPM, working with installing JavaScript libraries, using the node um, package manager, and then importing them into your JavaScript. So potentially, you know, you have to type all that stuff, but you could just write a comment that says, I'm going to use these libraries and I'm going to connect it to this FileMaker file and there's a script over there that I want you to connect to. And it just, yep. it generates that stuff for you. So Sure. Or, or, or you know, uh, our friends at Claris, from an engineering standpoint, begin to lean this direction as far as what the coding experience is like. You know, the biggest problem that Claris has right now, and I, I, I'm saying this because I know they're aware and even work with them on solving it, but is just getting people started, getting them from the inception of thought of a problem that they want to solve into an actual application. And to me, the answer for that very big problem for scaling, you know, the the FileMaker industry is about the uh, onboarding. And I feel strongly that machine learning in one way, shape or form can solve that problem and just get people from inception of thought of problem into an actual app and then start, you know, using the capabilities of the platform there. Uh, I think that's what's going to save the platform. Uh, that's interesting because that does that seem too much you mentioned whoa code yeah but is that i mean is that more scary than just trying to learn it yourself and and trying to you know write the script steps is it more is it is it a is there a barrier there that people will have trouble getting over well yeah i mean you're gonna you know, much in the same way that you say, like, hey, if you're a project manager and you don't actually do development, is it valuable for me to know code when I see it? Well, sure, because, you know, you might be an extra set of eyeballs or you, you know, might be auditing something or troubleshooting. So I think even even when we're in these like machine learning worlds of coding, us humans are still going to have to be like driving the bus, right? Uh, you know, to be able to react to these types of things. I also think, you know, strategic thinking and, you know, uh, change management and different stuff like that very much involves a human element. And I think we'll always certainly be there. 
um, and, and is is necessary, you know, to a quality product. So I, I'll, this is what I'll propose to you. Did you think before we had phones and email and all this kind of stuff that you could fit five more hours of productivity into your day? You probably, probably those of us that were, you know, pre-email business folks, yourself excluded, I'm sure, would thought, oh, there's no way I could possibly get more done in this day. And then all of a sudden, here we are in 2021. And it's like, wait, I got 15 Zoom meetings, 80 emails that have to go out, all this different stuff. Like, we're living in that world now. So I think it's just going to be when we take a lot of the rote exercise of what a lot of repetitive coding really is out of our world, we're just into the cool part. Like, I think all that's left is the cool stuff, you know, yeah. and making a difference. And I, and I think that's going to be good for, for all of us, uh, really, users and uh, developers. I've talked to many FileMaker developers who say the worst part is having to do the same thing over and over in each app, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's the problem that we're talking about solving here. And 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 frankly, it's, it's already happening. So... Um, you know, what will we see in the FileMaker platform in the future? Who knows? What will we see in other platforms in the future? Who knows? But, you know, right now, I think it's important for people to have an awareness and understand different use cases of machine learning, both in practice and in concept, and think about trying to, you know, embrace that, if not just conceptually. You know, there's a faction of of our our colleagues in the FileMaker community that just don't like emerging new tech. And, you know, it, it's been maybe easy enough to not jump on the web viewer javascript integration you know uh, train and still get by and not jump on api integration train and still get by and make a difference but man this next wave that's coming with the impact of what machine learning is going to have on development and use use and the outcomes that software is providing in other platforms outside of FileMaker, it's going to be almost impossible for us to you know get another 10 years out of this career and ignore machine learning coming. So I think it's really important to have an awareness and education about what can be done with this stuff. You know, you know, I, I, I do see an upside to this in that machine learning will get really good, but I assume it really can't handle ambiguity. So if you just say, you know, I want you to, here's a ticket that says, uh, create a new record. You know, that's not very descriptive. It has no idea what to do with that. But if someone has to describe it down to the last detail, you're going to get better at describing the, the use cases and describing the tickets and solving, you know, and I totally and, agree. Yeah. And I think that that provides hope for humans yeah. <laughs> right? right? in the role that we'll play the, that we'll play here. Certainly. I mean, uh, it's, it's very real, though. I, I, I really just think we're going to pack more productivity into the same amount of hours that we have in our human days. Uh, is really the the main impact that it's going to have. I don't think it's a replacement concern or anything like that, but um, but definitely becoming aware of these things, I think, is going to be paramount. And and just understanding use cases and seeing what other people have done with these things is probably the best way to do it. And and I know you've asked for examples and use cases here uh, throughout the course of this podcast, and and. And, and frankly, I have a I have a great one. I have, I have yeah. a super seek. I have a secret that I've been keeping from everybody in the FileMaker community for many years now, and it's solely based on a machine learning model uh, in FileMaker that made a big difference. And so I'm going to reveal it now because there's a video that Claris has shot on this as a um, on the same story. Uh, as a focus on how the Claris platform can integrate AI. So it's the reason I'm, and I'm kind of half kidding about like not sharing it before, but I just, it was a hobby that turned into a thing 
And FileMaker became one of the most accurate predictors of outcomes in an entire industry and frankly disrupted some industry. And, and it, it's all under the, the guise of sports. And this is with apologies. I know that, you know, I'm a huge sports guy, Jeremy. I, I you know, that is my obsession. That's what I spend all my free time on. Uh, long ago, and, and particularly like uh, professional football is my uh, Jones. I was born in Green Bay, Wisconsin, so I think we're we're supposed to be uh, professional football fans. I also this is the part that's embarrassing. Um, I play this thing called fantasy football. It's basically Dungeons and Dragons of uh, sports. My wife, God bless her, uh, she refers to it that way, and my imaginary friends. So it's that's the part that I was a little embarrassed about. But the the story behind it, I think, is actually kind of fascinating. So in in short. Um, back in, uh, 2011, I was, I was trying to figure out how to beat my friends at, at fantasy football. And for those of you that don't, you know, care much about sports, God bless you, um, or even understand what fantasy sports is. All it is, is just predicting what players are going to do. It's just saying, here's a, a, a quarterback on a football team. And this weekend, I think they are going to do well or bad or whatever. And the more accurate you are with the predictions, the, the more you can win and you can best your friends and family and become successful. So uh, about 10 years ago, I detected a pattern in some data. I didn't even know about machine learning back then, to be honest with you, uh, but I just detected a pattern and I said, hey, it seems like all these guys do worse when this happens and do better when this happens. Just a simple, like, I think I see a pattern, right? And so I started finding ways where I could pull data down. In, and of course, you know, I'm a FileMaker guy, so I pull it into FileMaker. So I pull all this data into FileMaker and I start trying to crunch it. And it was, just wasn't doing what I wanted. So I actually reached out uh, just some help uh, for some help with uh, this individual who's now part of a team that I work on. And we, we created, which was my first experience, mostly this individual creating it for me at the time, uh, a structured supervised machine learning model that takes years and years of, of sports performances in football and predicts what's going to happen. So, you know, I was able to take 15 years of NFL football and, and sports is great because the structure of the data is so precise. Like the rules of football haven't changed in a hundred years. The outcomes have changed, but the rules are the same. The same data happens after so many yards, you get a first down and blah, blah, blah. So I was able to create this uh, machine learning model that predicted um, outcomes, player outcomes. And I was literally just doing it to win my silly fantasy football leagues. And then I, then I started posting it on these accuracy websites where all the famous guys out there, guys and girls out there who are, you know, professionals in the industry would post their stuff. And all of a sudden this FileMaker machine learning model, Jeremy started showing up in like the top five and top 10 ranking lists. And everyone's like, who's this? And so I had to come up with a fake because it's a machine. So I had to come up with a fake name and pretend it was a person that, <laughs> that was predicting that led to people would invite me on radio shows on Sirius XM fantasy sports radio to be a call in to do predictions. And those predictions went so well that I eventually got a job. I was actually on Sirius XM sports radio for two football seasons with my own show every week, just being the voice of this machine learning model in this, uh, you know, football application that then led to, I went to work at, the, at a professional football league with three letters in it that could potentially, um, stand for no fun league, but it actually stands for something else. So just on the off chance that I'm not allowed to say that association, but I worked th for them and I had, I was tasked with writing articles that would predict player outcomes based on this machine learning model. And it was on the front page of their website for like 38 
games or 38 game weeks over two seasons. And it had like, a, it had over a, a million unique readers. I, and what I was actually doing with that was having FileMaker calculation functions output narrative and HTML charts that I would embed into these articles. So literally, I was using the model to make predictions, but the FileMaker uh, functions uh, were then actually writing articles that were then read by literally millions of people, which is insane. And it still persists till this day. I, I My focus is primarily on iSolutions. Um, you know, back in like 2017 or so, I, I you know, just let like a team of people run this so I could pay attention to my clients and my responsibilities with Claris and iSolutions. But over the last two years, this model has been ranked top 10 and top five most accurate predictor of football outcomes by this uh, sort of JD powers of, uh, of predictive uh, experts uh, website. So just recently in the last two seasons, it's been a top 10 and top five most accurate predictor of football outcomes. And it's FileMaker and machine learning uh, doing those things together. That's incredible. And you said Claris. Yeah, there will be a, a, a video out probably right around when this pod is going. It's likely going to be up on uh, uh, Claris website somewhere, Claris YouTube. Uh, look for the keyword of Fantasy Omatic. That's the name of the brand. It's also the website and Twitter that you can follow if you're interested in these types of things, if we catch a couple of sports folks out there. Uh, but the story itself will be in the video and you can learn all about uh, some of the modern uh, implementations like the CoreML integration that we've done there and some other AI stuff that we've done as FileMaker continues to modernize the platform. I've continued to tweak that model as well. Did you put all the data into FileMaker and let and then process it or use CoreML to process the FileMaker data? Or did you it was get a it was a bit of an evolution over time. You know, at first when I did it 10 years ago, I was uh importing CSV files in, or I was actually running this program called R that was doing like like literally creating these ratings for each player. And uh um I use this ridge regression concept that that was uh, you know, just familiar in like finance, predictive, you know, finance. And it was really, really perfect for the type of data that we had. But I required a separate application to do that. As time has evolved, we've removed, well, first of all, we did the uh, API version of uh, the R engine up on a cloud. And then that evolved into using um, uh, CoreML instead of R to actually uh, create those. So we're doing that natively now in the application. So, you know, as FileMaker reveals more uh, technology options to us, I've been utilizing those and CoreML is a great example of that. So uh, we're actually using that technology in FileMaker now. I think that's the key for, for FileMaker developers is learning how to take the data that's in their app that you mentioned is stored and somehow processing it. You mentioned the CoreML. Does that only do vision model? Work? No, actually, okay. uh, CoreML in general does a lot more than what is supported in FileMaker, but there's the vision. Actually, if you look at the uh, configure machine learning model script step, you'll see that you have two different inputs, a vision or a general, and that, that would be the data one like that that I'm using and that you can use for like the estimator predictions, anything non-vision, basically. Okay, so you, you're still having to extract <clears throat> that and you're still having to bring it over into, I think you mentioned you're using Xcode to process, to to train the model. You probably have to... Do you set up the the data as CSVs and and let the the core ML application work with that? Uh, yeah, really. You're you're taking FileMaker data and you're creating your training sets and your testing sets, just like you were okay. with a, a bunch of images. So yeah, you're, okay. you're, what you just described is, is accurate. Let's get back to the your 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 thing. So it's it's it was the, one of the top five predictors. Of yeah. success. Is that yeah. like? Is that a boon? Like, are yeah, that's people a big deal. Adopt for FileMaker? Adopt FileMaker? Because well, of I mean, 
<laughs> revealed that it's FileMaker. I'm only putting the the two pieces together here on this podcast. That like in people in the in the foot in the fantasy sports community. I mean, you know, I was you know on the front page of this this uh, football website for a couple of years, and then doing podcast stuff and even a couple TV appearances. So like people were you know eating it up. It was under the like analytics of data. Like that's kind of yeah. what they called it. But really, it's just it's just machine learning. Okay. Now it's very popular. So a lot of the um, professional like betters and stuff like that, they all have their own machine learning models. Uh, even in fantasy sports, there's a lot of machine learning models. Uh, so I'm very happy to say that in a crowded space, and by the way, there were like 200 or so experts that were evaluated um, over the past two years for accuracy of their predictions. Even some of them have their own models and the FileMaker one still showed up in, in, in the rarefied air of top 10 in each of those cases. So it's like, yay, FileMaker, That's- um, as far as I'm concerned. That's great. I mean, it was solving a, a problem for you, right? It was. Yeah. Really it was a yeah. I mean, now, you know, it's solving a problem for me as a hobbyist, but now it's a website where I have subscriptions and I, it's a side hustle where I make money off of this model. And because it's a model, it, it spews out tweets and articles, content and whatever. I, I really don't have to do much. So what could, what could a FileMaker developer do to capitalize, <laughs> capitalize on this with their, is there other data sets that that we could ingest and oh, it's, get to know? Yeah, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to make it even more simple. I think the takeaway here is do some research, uh, gravitate towards some tools, learn a little bit about the GPT-3 stuff. Maybe the, you know, the GitHub Copilot might be something that you, you play around with. Or just in general, think about data differently. Like think about where my data is pooling up within an organization or the applications that I'm creating. And then compare that to the conclusions that I think would make products, services, or support more meaningful to the organizations that we're catering to or our own. Frankly, I started with my own, not just this hobby stuff, but most of the ML stuff that I did was internal, you know, within our organization is, is a bit of a guinea pig. And that helps me understand it more, you know, gives me a safe space to play around with it. And then I can talk about these wins, you know, as they pertain to data and problems that I wanted to solve. But mostly I think the big thing is mindset. It's not necessarily that there's a problem and we need to solve it with machine learning. We want to look at what data we have and what intelligence that data sitting there, not doing anything, might have if we start letting it think amongst itself. And then what, what, how meaningful would the outcomes of that be to an organization? So that, that's what I would task individuals with as the immediate ta- thing to, to start thinking about. In your video, you showed the, the, uh, the vision model was able to, you know, return the image or the data of an image with like a 99% accuracy is data like the general modeling, um, that you were using and so forth. Is that as accurate? Like going back to your specific thing, when, when, when it, it suggested, here's what your, your time should be, or here's the tasks that you're going to get, you're going to slow down on. Was that always accurate or well, to a 99% degree or? Well, that's what you're shooting for. Um, it's rare to get 100, 99, you know, pretty much as confident as you can be. The confidence, that percentage is very much part of the vernacular of machine learning. So when you dive into it, the word confidence and the percent number is uh, is, is like one of the 101, machine learning 101 things. So So the way to think about it is, you know, when I was saying before, like, oh, I want to do this project management rating, but I don't have enough data. Well, I have enough data to do something that has a confidence of like 30%. But what I want is more granular data or more iterations of data so that I can get that confidence level up higher. And if I can get it into the 90s or whatever, then I personally as a human have confidence that the predicted predictions are going to be accurate as well, too. So like, for example, even in my silly football thing, 
you know, to bring it down to that, I have a thing where I go, I'm predicting that this player will have an outcome. Yep. But this, my, my confidence of the outcome is either 25%, 50%, 75%, or 100% based on how much data I have on that player. So rookies that just came into the league, I'm like, yeah, he's going to do well this weekend, but I'm 25% confident because I, I don't have a lot of data on this person. But then you look at the people who've been in, you know, the league for many, many years for like 20 years and you go, oh, I'm super, con- I'm a hundred, I'm 90% confident that this is what the outcome is going to be because I have more data. So the confidence thing is very much part of, of the model and very much part of how much you're going to lean on the model yes. uh, in predictive analysis. Okay. Okay. But it still, I mean, it still happened, even if it came back with a very high confidence, it still could have been the wrong prediction, right? Sure. I mean, in real life, that's what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... uh, The player is either going to do really well or he's really not, you know, depending on that exact day, not just the data behind him. I, I, and this is what I tell people all the time. They go, oh, you know, you predicted that this guy would throw two touchdowns and do this, that, and the other, and he didn't do any of those things. Well, it's like, well, what we were, the statement that we're actually making is the probability of this outcome is much higher than any other outcome. So if you're going to, you know, leverage that information, go ahead and do it. But, you know, across time, you'll have so many rights and so many wrongs based on just, you know, these are human beings running around on like, you know, a grass surface, throwing footballs into the air, like anything could happen. But when you're talking about like data with, you know, like how many products people order and at what time and what it takes, you know, how long it takes for me to construct a project in our, in our, um, you know, in our, our, uh, uh, assembly cycle, those are way more predictive and structured, and therefore your confidence is, is easier to achieve, p- potentially even with smaller data sets if necessary. I wonder if they teach this stuff in schools yet, like not necessarily college. I assume computer science degrees get it, but maybe business analyst degrees or maybe you know business degrees for that matter, or even clear down as far as high school as they start to teach coding. Uh, I certainly hope that it, it happens at the high school level. Uh, high schoolers right now have lived in a, are awash in a machine learning world. Like almost every aspect of their daily life is affected by machine learning, mostly because they're plugged into devices all the time. So that type of thinking doesn't even, like, you don't even have to introduce this to people. There's no woe about it, right? It's just like, oh yeah, of course this, you know, I pick up my phone in the morning. It goes, well, usually when you pick up your phone, you're probably checking your email. So why don't we just take your email? Like they get that. I think the, the, the thing with high schoolers would be just like, what practical application do we have? So if I had a high school or high schooler, I would be moving them towards anything machine learning related. If I was a young, uh, you know, a person coming up into the ranks in the FileMaker community, I would be wielding the sword of machine learning as the, the differentiator for me within the space. And frankly, let's face it, like we're always looking for opportunities and differentiators. We're a ecosystem full of individuals who have been doing this for 30 something years. If you really want to differentiate, then zig when everyone else is zagging. And, and that that's where you move towards the most, uh, you know, aggressive bleeding edge technologies. It used to be, you know, you know, uh, like I said before, you know, JavaScript integrations with web viewers, that's a very small community that's moved there with great upside, you know, present company can, can speak to that. And then API integrations, like, you know, we're no, no fewer than like a third of the line items that we bill out to our customers right now on every project across all different scopes as API and integration related now. And imagine if I had just turned like as a business owner, turned my, you know, the other cheek to, 
the existence of these modern technologies and said, you know, I don't believe in it. Well, no, I have one third of my revenue would be would be gone and who knows where it's going to go in the future. So I am using the same logic towards machine learning and education thereof. And, and pr- frankly, it's fascinating. Um, and once you learn more and more about it, you're going to start to see like, oh, yeah, like there's models everywhere, <laughs> you know. I would love a model to, to alert me on my phone whenever I get near Disney World. It says, <laughs> Jeremy, you don't have any money left in your budget. So turn well, around and go home. <laughs> you just so this is my prediction for the future, Jeremy. It, and this might be a good way for us to wrap all this stuff up. That exact example that you just gave. So here's what here's why you don't have that already, because you just described various different models. You just described the model that's on your phone that knows where you are and where you've been and, and you know, kind of predicts what you're doing at Disney and that kind of thing. Uh, the model that knows what your finances are and what your spending habits are. That's a totally different one. That's owned by your bank or whatever. Right. And then the Netflix one and the Amazon one and all these. So. I believe that, well, I know, I'm, I'm confident that in our current reality, we have dozens, if not hundreds of these models that are independently being created from our role, primarily as consumers, right? Because people are making money off of these, you know, whether it be the aforementioned uh, Amazon purchases or what we watch on Netflix or like just everything Google. But as personal, the other thing that's really interesting is everything's a model, whether you're realizing it or not. And the sooner you realize it, the more amazed you'll be by it. But also what's happening is personal data privacy. Like it's never been a bigger issue about, you know, who's tracking me and consumer tracking. And, and we're really going to see a, a rapid decrease in that. So I think there's going to be a really important moment. This is like sort of my thought that I'll throw out to, to people. There's going to be an important moment where instead of having tons of these different models that are constantly tracking us, we'll probably get to absolute zero on tracking. And then what we'll have to do is have uh, opt into a single model. And I really, I, I predict that this will be a silly comment in two, three years from now. We'll be like, oh, really? But now it seems a little space age. But we'll have one single model. Let's call it a self model. So I'll have the Chris Ippolite model. You'll have the Jeremy Brown model. And it will have all of that stuff in one data pool. Where you're going, what you do when you get there, how much money you generally need when you go during the week as opposed to a weekend night or whatever. All that information will be there and it will be driving this. And everyone will have will be able to train. Well, every action that you do, every decision you make, every like or dislike will be training that model on the fly. Mm-hmm. You'll have this secure model with every one of those likes and dislikes. And it'll be correlated with our actions and decisions until finally... Every interaction with the world around us will, will appear to be thought-driven, like what you just described, but it'll really just be our self-models that are making decisions one second ahead of our brains. And honestly, I look forward to it. Oh, I look forward wow. to I, I look forward to the road rising in front of me because I know what I want to do and I'm not thinking about it at the moment. I'm not talking about being spammed constantly, you know, every time we have a thought, you know, there's a product. Like, I really think data privacy is going to eliminate that part of it. Like the whole, you know, minority report, you know, scene where he's walking down the street and all that. I don't think data privacy is going to let us get there. I think it's just going to be exactly what you said. Before you even leave the house or before you text somebody about going to Disney, they're like, yeah, not today. (laughs) save me the whole hassle in the first place or when i'm there it'll be like hey don't go towards this ride or that ride you know because i know but last time we were here blah blah like i I can't even come up with examples because it's too esoteric but that's what i believe is going to happen we're going to have our own self models that are thinking just a second ahead of what our what our brains are doing and then when you fold that into the kind of stuff that like elon musk is doing with you know putting chips into your brain to actually bridge the gap between synapses firing and these models 
that is in fact, and he says we're like a year away from that as we record this podcast. So that's my sorry I ruined everybody's day <laughs> or maybe made it, but like machine learning is real. It's you're already immersed in it. It's it's uh, the bar has been lowered. So it's e easy for us to get to this and, and leverage these within our own business practices and applications that we're building for customers. And the more we lean into it, the the more impactful the services that we're providing for people will be. Oh, and that's again, that's what's good about FileMaker is it allows it's it now includes that natively. It's it's working with the Mac OS's core ML. Uh, although you did say, and I something learned new. I learned something new that it works with. It worked previously with other services, but FileMaker is our platform, and it is picking up something that is just coming down the pipe. Right? It's it's picking up machine learning. It's it's starting to be able to use that. Do you have predictions about how it's going to evolve inside of our platform? Yeah, well, you know, I'm doing everything I can to try to influence that. You okay. know, but if if it were up to me, and it's not, I just want to be I just want to be really clear about that. But if it was up to me, I would be uh, engineering a platform that's future proof. Uh, that that means that the Claire's platform can can bridge the gap between the inception of the idea, the moment that a customer reveals itself, and them actually being into the app experience. Like whatever you can do to 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 flatten that out, the better. Because right now that could take weeks, sometimes even months, to get them from I have this idea to it's an actual thing. It's clearly a problem right now in the platform because we've tried to graduate forward this old rote development environment that made sense in the late 80s and early 90s to try to make sense today. I say we just trash all that history and jump right over it and go, how can we articulate what we need and then turn that into the first cycles of an app? Not the whole app, just the first cycles of an app and just bridge that gap. That is what I think Claris should and likely will do. I have the confidence that that's the direction they'll move. All right. Wonderful. Well, this is uh, very um, alarming and exciting. And <laughs> Sorry. My apologies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought I would. Well, I, I honestly, I haven't touched this machine learning stuff at all in FileMaker. And I, you know, I've been, I feel like I try to stay on top of the latest technology. So I'm going to have to get into that and see what that's about. I can't, I can't preach being up on the latest technologies if I haven't touched that stuff yet. So. I need that's to where my head's that. at too. So right. um, yeah, hopefully we've inspired some folks that are listening that stuck with this. At the very least, you know, it's it's fascinating and magical. Uh, and there's so much surprise and delight built into understanding machine learning and finally building your own models that I hope that that's enough for people to, you know, embark on this quest, just like, you know, like what I've reported here. Where can, um, where can FileMaker developers learn more about and machine learning, Core ML, and how it works in FileMaker. Yeah, I think that um, understanding the capabilities within the platform, like specific to Core to Core ML, are very important. You can learn a lot about Core ML specifically on Apple's website. You know, Apple has a, a Core ML section of the site that you can uh, Google around for. Learn about the capabilities and what problems they solve, and then learn about the subset of those capabilities that FileMaker can can use. I would also then have people go check out ready-made model systems like the Monkey Learn, and there's a bunch of other ones out there too. Uh, if you just want to kind of see it in action and get your get your mitts on it, you know, pretty quickly. After that point, you'll start having that awareness of 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 what kind of models you might need or train for yourself or at least be able to speak intelligently with what can be done in the platform for your customers. Right. 
All right, Chris, this is great. Where can people uh, reach out and ask you questions about? Uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, always interested in, in hearing from folks. Uh, you, of course, can uh, interact with us over at uh, isolutions-inc.com on our uh, corresponding Twitter uh, and uh, LinkedIn uh, accounts as well, too. We always love having conversations with individuals. And if you see me in the hallways when we start getting back into you know in-person events, uh, pull me aside and just say machine learning and, and we'll chat. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'll have a bunch of stuff coming out on the iSolutions uh, 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 YouTube channels. There's a ton of stuff out there already. Um, if you go uh, check out our, our website and under articles, you'll see a bunch of stuff on machine learning and some videos that I've already been working on in the lab, including some of these uh, cool monkey learn ones that I've been playing around with. Great. Well, very good, Chris. It's great to talk with you. And when, um, when uh, FileMaker can uh, actually create itself an app out of it, out of the text that I write, we'll have you back on and you can uh, describe <laughs> okay. that for us. Sounds good. Well, hopefully by that time you can just have the machine learning model of of me. Um, oh yeah, we could just <laughs> we could bring up Chris Simple bot, right? <laughs> right, and exactly. Just ask him questions, or is exactly. it? I don't know. I don't. Or, know or have you been talking to the Chris Simple bot this whole oh, time? I'll leave that with you for brain time. explode. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. This has been fun as usual. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. And that brings us to the end of another episode of the Context Podcast. Thanks to Chris Hippolyte, at least I think I was talking to the real Chris, for clarifying the power we have now in machine learning in FileMaker. I'm intrigued what I can do with it. It's a bit scary, but it's important to stay on top of new and high-power technologies that touch our platform. So I'm going to be taking a look in depth in the next weeks. If you're interested in working with machine learning, check out the links in the show notes, refer to Chris Ippolite's site to see it in action, and take a look at the video that Claris just released about this wonderful app. If you're so inclined, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. We're incredibly interested in your thoughts and your show ideas and volunteer to lend your experience, perspective, and voice to the podcast by sharing what you have to say about a particular topic near and in the platform in which we work and play and learn. Talk to you next time.